You can grab your Bibles and join me uh, in the book of John. The Gospel of John is where we'll be. Just a few verses there uh, tonight. Sort of a shorter message for Easter, but a, a certainly one that I'm excited to, to, uh, to share with you. John chapter 6, pick it up in verse uh, 41. John 6, 41. These are the words of God. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that come down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that uh, one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that come down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we rejoice this day because of your Son, our King. He is not dead, but he is risen. We are thankful that you saw fit to raise Jesus from the dead through the power at work in the Trinity. So, Father, we have assembled tonight as the assembly of the way, empowered by your resurrection to see the crown rights of King Jesus acknowledged in all nations. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, today marks Resurrection Sunday on the church calendar, and while we join in with millions who have gathered to celebrate the risen Christ this day, we need to be sure to revisit the significance of the resurrection as it pertains to our calling in the world. So the resurrection isn't just something we get together and talk about, and someday we'll we'll be in heaven and that's all there is to it. We need to consider our calling in the world, and how that ties to the resurrection. Since we here at Cross and Crown Church believe that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only, we find it absolutely important to root all of our teaching both in sound doctrine and sound practice. So we are always talking about how to implement kingdom principles into everything that we can touch, right? Anything we can find. And we do not do this out of a works righteousness paradigm. We do this because we have been gripped deeply by the gospel message, the gospel of the kingdom of God, and we do it out of grace-saturated hearts who want to serve and obey God. 
Now, having said that, I want to talk tonight briefly about King Adam II. Jesus Christ is King Adam II. When Christ came to dwell among men, he did so as the second Adam, the perfect man. Part of Christ's mission was to undo everything that King Adam I had done. Because of their rebellion, Adam and Eve in the garden, they had made a mess of things. Now, Adam was called to be, a, to be God's prophet, to be God's priest, and God's king. He was called to do that, and he was to do it in the following way. As a prophet, Adam's intellectual life was to be governed and submitted to the law word of God. He was to interpret the world and everything in the world in terms of God's law, and he was to apply that law to the development of the world. Now, Adam could not be a prophet if he would not obey God's word. That's one of the, to point out the obvious, you have to actually obey the words in order to do that. Adam could not, furthermore, develop the world apart from God's law, at least develop it in a way consistent with the character of God. By rejecting the true knowledge of God, Adam created a false concept of knowledge, right? Just think about the, remember the, the temptation you know, you will, you will be like God. You'll be able to discern and, and create good and evil and on your terms and not God's. Or that was the temptation. So Adam created a false concept of knowledge and a subsequent anti-theistic view of God's law. So when Adam sinned, he threw off the prophetic calling under God and instead became a false prophet of Satan. It's interesting when you trace um, Adam's rejection of his prophetic calling and then connected to the book of Revelation who uh, there's the false prophet in Revelation so there's some interesting paradigms there <clears throat> but instead of seeing God's created order as set within the context of God's law word the created order then was set in the context of man's autonomous lusts so suddenly you have brute facts right in, in this created, self-created world, you have brute facts and this attempted isolation from the creator. So um, I'm going to mention this a little bit earlier or later, but um, our engagement at George Mason University last week was quite telling. When you talk to someone whose life is lived uh, autonomously, right? Self-law is what that means. It comes out in a lot of different ways and you can find (laughs) very quickly the world is not just brute facts. The world has facts because God, right? That, so, but when you try to argue all of that stuff apart from God, well, this is what you get. You get this anti-theistic pretended knowledge, so to speak. So that's Adam uh, as he was called to be a prophet. Now, as a priest, Adam, King Adam I, he was called to dedicate and consecrate himself to God's holy creation. That's what he was to do. Nothing, note this, because many people mess this up. Nothing was profane in God's creation. Nothing was, you know, outside the temple or outside of God. Nothing, nothing was created unholy and unrighteous. So Adam's job, then, as a covenant man, he was to further the holiness of God through the vehicle of the law of God into all civilization. Now, we know the story, however, when Adam sinned, everything was flipped upside down. When Adam sinned, everything was flipped upside down. As a false priest now, Adam and his progeny, his offspring, insisted on seeing everything 
as profane or outside of God. It was a reversal of holiness. So thus, for Adam and those in Adam, violations of God's law became that which was sacred. Right? And God's law then became unholy. The Ten Commandments, for example, then were viewed as something restrictive and oppressive, something profane, something sacrilegious. To violate the law of God then became man's pursuit of his own twisted holiness. That's what it was. Man decided in Adam to twist his own holiness, concoct his own thing, cook up whatever sort of thing he can come up with, then he'll slap the word holiness on it and he'll call it good, when in reality it's rebellion. When we remove the concept of holiness from God and his law word, we begin to advocate as false priests for anarchy and rebellion. Now the world should be reconsecrated for God and his purposes. That's what we're trying to do, right? That, as priests, we're trying to reconsecrate stuff that's been profaned. So that's why we want magistrates to obey Christ and all these other things. Um, so we should be reconsecrating for God all things and for his purpose. Um, but fallen men who are in covenant with King Adam I, they refuse to do so. So they become bent on marring holiness. That's why you have Obergefell. That's why you have uh, this whole you know, skyrocketing anarchist belief of sin. Now, so we talked about us being prophet and priest. Let's talk about Adam as king. As king, under God's sovereignty, Adam was called to rule the world on God's terms, and he was called to develop a social order in the same manner. He was to supervise the whole creation project as God's vice regent. He was the guy who was in charge. He was the one who was to take God and his word and his covenant and to do something with it, to expand Christ's kingdom. However, though, when Adam the first, King Adam the first, rebelled, he sought his own path to lordship and sovereignty. Instead of being under God's sovereign authority, he thought he could secede from God and then he could assert his own kingdom purposes. So he desired to be his own God and, and in his own kingdom and doing it all as his own lord where everything underneath his authority would serve man instead of God. Now, man's imaginations and sinful rule would become twisted, become the social order that he created would be one in this utter rebellion against God. That's how far sin entered. We just sang joy to the world on Easter, which I absolutely, I, I love it. We'll have to do that later again. Um, but that, as far as the curse is found everywhere, so that's, that's where this, um, this rebellion goes. Now, before we go on to talk about and examine how King Adam II corrects the folly of King Adam I, I want to point um, your attention to a few verses in our passage. The discussion at this point is followed by two miracles in the book of John. First is the feeding of the multitude, and then the second miracle was walking on water. The crowds had chased after Jesus, and Jesus used it as an opportunity to teach them something. Now, one of the central points is found here in our text. You can look at verse 48. <clears throat> Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. The issue surrounding the feeding of the multitude led many to believe that Jesus could provide manna, just like what had happened to their ancestors. 
Now, in calling for manna and demanding this from Jesus, they desired comfort, they desired security, and uh, the sort of you know, cradle-to-grave security, and they wanted it all apart from God, though. Jesus tells them in the verse before, in verse 47, that those who believe in Jesus, the bread of life, they will have eternal life. If you want eternal life, you must believe and embrace and partake of this bread of life. Those who ate the manna in the wilderness, if you recall, well, they were the rebellious generation, and they died. They, God did not permit them to enter the promised land. These people that Jesus is talking to, they need better, something better than manna, something that the expiration date, there is none, right? They, they needed something that would provide for them for an eternity. Those in Christ, however... They must eat, and they may eat of this bread of life, and not die. Verse 50. Now here is the focus of what Jesus is driving home. Look at verse 51. I want to read that to 58. He says, I am the bread of life. Excuse me. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us flesh, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, central to Jesus' understanding of himself as King Adam II is the issue of his flesh. I read this text often, like when I read it, I, I often will chuckle because it, it sounds so morbid. What, I mean, he just says it. You have to eat me. You want to live, you have to eat me. <clears throat> if you want eternal life, if you want salvation and all that it entails, one thing is for certain. You must eat Christ. You must partake of him. Now, the flesh that Jesus speaks of refers to his humanity. He's talking about his humanity. When men come to Christ... They do not come to Christ because they can become a god. This is one of the central errors of Mormon doctrine. The Christian faith is not a pursuit of deity or theosis, as theologians call it. We do not become deified when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, you're not suddenly gods or mini-gods, at least in the fuller sense. When we partake of Christ's flesh... We are partaking of his humanity. That's the point he's making. We are restored into a true humanity with Jesus as our new federal head, our human head, right? And thus, we are restored to what God has called us to, this dominion mandate. And this only happens when you trust in Christ, King Adam II. That's the only way you get eternal life. That's the only way you get restored into the covenant, Jesus and his humanity, Jesus, he is the bread of life who came down from heaven. When he came, he came as a man. 
Jesus came as a man. We just confessed that in the Nicene Creed and then in the Heidelberg, which talks about the Apostles' Creed. Jesus became a true man. He came to those who were cursed in King Adam I, and he reconstitutes or he recovenants them as their new head, as King Adam II. His flesh, his true humanity, is our bread of life. When we partake of Christ's humanity, which is the point of Jesus in this passage, we are no longer sinful, hell-bound sons of King Adam I, but we are now the just and righteous, life-bound sons of King Adam II. That's the point of all of this. The bread he gives is his humanity. You need Jesus' humanity. You need his deity, yes, but you need his humanity, his glorious humanity. And when we enjoin ourselves to him by faith, we are remade, we are remade into this, the uh, people of righteousness and justice in eternal life. Now listen, <clears throat> to sort of bring, bring this together. Adam ate that which was forbidden, and thus he incurred death. Jesus came to die and be eaten so that we may live. Notice the connection. Adam ate that, that which was forbidden, and thus he incurred death. Jesus came to die and be eaten so that we may live. Food. We're going to fellowship some more afterwards with some good food. Food is a central thing. You get kids getting hungry? <laughs> Easter, then, that's what today is, right? The Resurrection Sunday. Easter is the story of King Adam II's reclamation, reclaiming of all that was broken by King Adam I. That's why Easter matters. We're not getting together on Easter to, to celebrate the fact that things are bad and Jesus is going to come and that's our hope. Yes, he is our hope and he will return, but his return is to a, an earth conquered by the gospel. His return, he doesn't have a mop bucket and a broom ready to sweep things up. That's not what our hope is. Our hope is centered on the fact that Jesus has bought us and we are his now in history and we may obey him. And central to this restoration of men to their role as prophet, priest, and king is this whole point. Adam's failure became Christ's success. Adam's failure became Christ's success. And when you think about, we'll come back to this in a minute, but when you, when you think about the fact that Adam partook of fruit that was from a tree and then Jesus was crucified on a tree, and we partake of him, suddenly it all kind of it brings it together. Adam's rebellion was undone by Christ's obedience. Everything that Adam had done to bring condemnation and destruction to the world, Christ has restored. That's what Easter is all about. That's it. When Christ died on the cross, he made it possible... Listen, he made it possible for God to suspend the penalty of our transgression of the law, restore us into his grace, and he did it all without loosening the grip of the law or undermining his justice. I'll say that one more time because I don't want you to miss this. When Christ died on the cross, he made it possible and actual for God to suspend the penalty of our transgression of the law, Restore us then into his grace. And he did all of that without loosening the grip or the demand of his law or undermining his justice. 
That's part of the argument in the book of Romans that <clears throat> Paul unpacks with regard to how, how can a sinner who's broken God's law, how does he get out of that conundrum? How does he get out? Listen, here's how. The only way for the unjust to live in moral harmony and congruity with the just is for the just to take upon himself the legal demands of justice which was broken by the unjust. So follow that, follow that train of thought. The only way for the unjust to live in moral harmony and con, um, congruity with the just is for the just one, Jesus, to take upon himself the legal demands of justice which was broken by us, the unjust. So King Adam had brought to his progeny, to his offspring, a legal verdict of condemnation. What did God warn? Kids, do you remember? What did God warn Adam and Eve? The day that you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. die. You will surely die. That, and we know from the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. When you sin against God, you incur death. That's what happens. And this condemnation puts enmity between God and man. And the only way out of this, don't miss this part too, kids. The only way out of this was for a just man, a just man, a righteous man, someone who was completely spotless, entirely sinless, to take upon himself that condemnation. That's, all, that's the only way it could happen. King Adam II had to die. And Jesus, think about this, Jesus was crucified on a piece of timber that he created. Jesus Christ was crucified on a piece of timber that he himself had created. And that was the only way it could happen. That's the only way it could be undone. King Adam II came as God to men who hated God. He came as God to men who hated God. He entered into his creation. He took upon himself the covenant curses that were incurred by King Adam I. And in so doing, he swallowed all of them up on the cross of Christ. Kids, don't miss this. Listen carefully. After Jesus was good and dead, he was buried. And after he was buried, he was raised. He was raised. And he was raised as this new covenant head, this federal head of this new people. And we are that people. We are a part of that people. Now, Easter, Easter is a celebration of Christ, no doubt. But it's also a celebration of a new humanity. Jesus, the man, is risen. And because he is risen, you and I have forgiveness of sins. You and I are restored. We are brought back into this covenant relationship that we had broken. We are his sons and daughters now. As people in covenant with King Adam II, we, the church, the people of God, are restored to our calling as prophets, priests, and kings. Our prophetic calling is to bring the law word of God to bear on creation that calling has been restored. Our priestly calling to steward the world towards a volitional life governed by Christ, that too has been restored. Our kingly calling to use our creative energies to govern ourselves and our families and our churches and our societies towards God's word, that too has been restored. When we partake of the flesh of Christ, the humanity of Christ, we are, we are brought back to the dominion government. Listen, and don't confuse this, because people confuse this. We do not go back to Eden. We are not going back to Eden. Eden is brought to us, and it is expanded. 
That is a major, <laughs> that's, no small, that's no small point. There's a reason, and there's several reasons why um, when Jesus was mistaken in the book of John to be the gardener, <clears throat> that's King Adam II. He came out of the tomb. He was mistaken as a gardener because he is a gardener. He's cultivating his new creation. <clears throat> now, when we consider what it means to live in this world for the glory of Christ, we have to keep in mind that fallen men in King Adam I have no real category for this. They don't have a category for this. Fallen men whose intellectual lives are governed by Darwin, they don't have the ability to obey Christ. They don't have the ability to obey the Dominion Covenant. They're outside of the covenant. They think that we've evolved from the muck. Any explanation of origins will suffice so long as it has nothing to do with God. But we have a different message altogether. Instead of descending from pond scum, we have descended from royalty. Instead of evolving and descending from pond scum, we have descended from royalty. Fallen man tries to have life apart from God, but it only incurs death. Redeemed man in Christ now has life, and his life is with Jesus Christ, his true king. So we are a part of a royal family. That's what Peter says as much, right? We are a royal priesthood. And part of the message must be an insistence that people take part of this royalty. That's, what we're, that's part of what our job is, to invite people to, to, to royalty. The interaction that Jesus has in this text is absolutely brilliant. He tells them that they do not have life unless they partake of his humanity. They don't have life. If you do not eat me, my flesh, you do not have life. Apart from Christ, then, they are people of death. They are people of King Adam I. Only those who become members of Christ's new humanity have eternal life and have resurrection life. And only... Listen, only Christ's humanity gives humanity humanity. Only Christ's humanity gives humanity humanity, true humanity. There is no future for those who will not live within the confines of Christ's flesh, which means that we cannot and will not have Christ as our God if we do not first have him as our human, as our man, as our federal head. Now, the tension in this text stems from the fact that they wanted God on their terms. Give us more bread. Get, and he says as much earlier, you, you're only hanging out because I gave you all that food, basically. You don't really want, you don't want to partake of this. You want the manna. You're, you want God on your terms. You want comfort. You want security. I'm telling you, you have to take up your cross. That, that's part of the tension in the text. They wanted God and Christ to bow down and serve them. They didn't want God on his terms. And isn't that what we see all around us? Now consider the issue of worship. And I don't mean worship as just defined by singing together as the church. I mean it in a larger sense. Worship is tied to meaning and significance. Worship is tied to meaning and significance. We worship... That which gives us significance, that which we find to be meaningful. For those who are in King Adam the first, significance from, comes from believing the lie, the lie of the serpent. Now, we have, we have college students at liberal universities believing that one can have significance apart from Christ. That true significance stems from the fact that we evolved from apes. 
I had a conversation with a young man. I'm not, I won't say his name, but you should pray for him. <clears throat> Last week, who is a nihilist, which means nothing has meaning, right? Nothing has purpose. Um, and and he's, a, a government, he's a government major, so we talked about democracy, and he said, well, it just kind of works, but it doesn't always work. And, and so... So we got into the conversation about, you know, we, we continue to, to, to murder children. Abortion in our nation is skyrocketing, and, and it's just, it's perpetual. We keep doing it. And, he's, and I said, is that wrong? And he said, well, I don't think it's great, but I can't say it's wrong, you know. And so, okay, well, what about, you know, the, the person who kills innocent people? Like, is that wrong? He's like, well, basically his point was he thinks that society determines that which is right and wrong. He has a collectivist idea. So, so he, he's doing all of this intellectual stuff apart from his true prophetic calling in Christ, which is to obey God's word and implement God's word. So he, he's forced to live a life of utter meaninglessness. So here's the irony. The only thing that mattered to him is his viewpoint that nothing matters. That's it. So, you know, we already tripped him up in his conversation <laughs> after pointing that out, but but wherever, wherever we place that meaning, that significance, that's where we give our worship and obedience. If we don't find Christ to be all that compelling, all that meaningful, we won't obey him. That's the bottom line. If, if, if we think that significance and meaning is found in rebellion, that's what we'll do. We'll attempt to usurp the authority of God by asserting our own authority. <clears throat> So we'll find meaning, we'll find purpose, we'll find significance in our assertion of autonomy. But what you should know is that Easter destroys autonomy. Easter destroys it. Why? Because we live in a world where a tomb that once housed a dead man no longer has the dead man. This is material stuff. It's geography. It's flesh and blood. It's matter. It's the periodic table. It's it's Jesus' flesh is no longer dead sort of thing. The resurrection of King Adam II in time and space and history makes war on false prophets and false priests and false kings. As the head of a new humanity, this king, he advances his kingdom, his social order, into every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And he does so without concern for the feelings of snowflakes. The ironic thing in this passage is that the Jews who were listening found Jesus' words about eating him hard to swallow, ironically. But he didn't care. He did not care. They, they found it absolutely offensive that Jesus would say sh- such a thing. And he, Jesus doesn't care. He's not all that worried about it if you can swallow it or not. The truth is the truth. You either bend the knee or quiet yourself. That's what Jesus' position is. Telling people that, he, that they had to eat his flesh, that they had to partake of his humanity, or they would perish, is about as intolerant as it gets, right? Apparently, Jesus was not a religious pluralist. Think about what Jesus is claiming here. Only through him does one have eternal life. Only through him can a man truly live Only through him does one move from death to life. Only through Jesus Christ can the world be redeemed. And I want you to look at verse 51 because there's a chance that you missed something. And if you missed it, I pity. (laughs) I pity you because Jesus sort of sneaks this in here and it's easy to overlook. Look at verse 51. 
He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice he says, the life of the world. This bread, this humanity and flesh of King Adam II gives life to the world. Easter is for the world. That's why we had uh, John read Psalm 2. The world is the goal of the gospel, right? The gospel is to go to the world. The only way men can be saved and restored, the only way the world can be saved and restored is through Christ's flesh. That's it. There's no other way. And what you must do, kids, listen carefully. What you must now do is believe in this message. That's what you're to do. You've you got to turn away from your sins, repent, which means change your direction, right? Change your mind. And you must embrace King Adam II's message. You must embrace this reality. That's the only way to get out of this whole thing. It's the only way to get out of the sin. It's the only way to get back to business for God's kingdom in this world. We've run ourselves headlong into sin, and the only way out is through the resurrection of King Adam II. That's it. We have to stop trying to concoct our own ways. There is no other way. So kids, who alone can save you from your sins? Jesus. Jesus. That's it. Jesus. In this gospel of the kingdom that we proclaim, that's the message. That's the whole point of it all. We shouldn't change it. We shouldn't tamper with it. We should embrace it. We should implement it. And we should declare it without reservation. He is risen. And he intends to rule the world. So, get to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that King Adam II is alive and well. We rejoice in the fact that we get to have true humanity because Christ is our bread of life. We are elated that in this grand plan of yours, your plan to reclaim ruined sinners across this planet, you have established Christ as king. And as your covenant people, we are honored to be considered part of the royal family. We ask and pray that your, your Easter message would resound across this world and bring more and more people to the saving knowledge of your son. And we ask this in the powerful name, the risen name of Jesus Christ. Amen.